0: Gosh, reading is hard. Welcome to Charlotte Mason Says. I'm John Schindel, here with my wife, Crystal. Join us as we read and discuss the home education series. Before we get into the discussion of this chapter, we wanted to remind you that we're brought to you this month by Rooted Childhood. Each month of Rooted Childhood offers a curated set of stories, poetry, books, and eight simple handicraft projects, along with a detailed supply list, video tutorials, and beautiful photos for inspiration. Rooted Childhood will help you spend more quality time with your children instead of spending that time coming up with the next activity to do. Visit RootedChildhood.com and use coupon code says 15 for a special discount offer just for our listeners. So we're on chapter 12, which is Faith and Duty, Claims of Philosophy as an Instrument of Education. This is the second review that Charlotte Mason did. And this is reviewing the book Education from a National Standpoint by Alfred Foyer. So the first thought I had about this as I was reading through it is this chapter seems to break down into two distinct sections. The first section being her review of his book itself. And it's a It's a pretty cut and dry review where she pulls out quotes from his book and she talks about them. And then in the second half of the, of the chapter, she actually springboards off of a final thought of his and she gives any number of her own thoughts. And it, it broke down into two sections, almost exactly at the halfway mark. And for me, reading through the first half of the chapter was pretty dry. And then it got really interesting at the end. So I'm excited to get to that portion of this chapter, although I think there's probably still good stuff in the beginning.
1: You like reading Charlotte Mason?
0: I do. She's a lot of fun to read. She has good thoughts and ideas.
1: The old Victorian style.:
0: yeah,' it's, that's also kind of fun. I don't know how many books I've read from that time period. Let's see when did uh, when did Jane Austen write her books? Hello, Google. Sense and Sensibility was in 1811.
1: This is 1868. Little Women was published.
0: Yeah. Sense and Sensibility was 1811. Pride and Prejudice was 13. Mansfield Park was 14. Emma was 15. Goodness. She cranked those out.
1: Maybe she just had them all.
0: It's 13, 14, 15. Pride and Prejudice, Mansfield Park, and Emma. And then Posthumus, Posthumous. she was dead. North Ganger, Abbey, Persuasion and Lady Susan in eighteen eighteen, eighteen eighteen and eighteen seventy one.
1: Took them a while to find that manuscript.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so okay, so I did listen to the majority of Pride and Prejudice once upon a time. That is an old book.
1: Yeah. So Little Woman was eighteen sixty eight.
0: Yeah, well, and I, I enjoyed listening to Pride and Prejudice. I thought it was a lot of fun. The, you know, the, the wordiness of the characters, the situations they found themselves in.
1: Back to chapter 12, Faith and Duty. Claims of philosophy as an instrument of education. And uh, Monsieur Foyer was talking a lot about philosophy and it really, it touched a trigger with her where where she agrees with him in that they need a cohesive underlying why. And that that's that's where she's going with this. So we start off with Locke.
0: And Locke is a dude. He's not the dude though.
1: John Locke was in the 1600s, an English philosopher and physician, commonly known as the father of liberalism. And he is the one who postulated that at birth, the mind was a blank slate, or tabula rasa.
0: Which we've talked about. She talks about Locke in the intro...
1: Was it the intro?
0: Mm, Somewhere.
1: Page 29, the first part of chapter 4.
0: That's where she mentions the tabula rasa. Mm -hmm. It is in the preface. In the preface, she says, not having received the tables of our law, referring to the law of life-learning? She says, those of us who have spent many years in pursuing the benign and elusive vision of education perceive that her approaches are regulated by a law and that this law has yet to be evoked. And then later, she says, not having received the tables of our law, we fall back upon Frobel or upon Herbart. Herbart? Herbart. Or, if we belong to another school, upon Locke or Spencer. But we are not satisfied. So she mentions Locke in the preface. She mentions him seemingly in the negative. Mm -hmm. Definitely
1: the tabula rasa in the negative.
0: Right. She definitely doesn't like the, the theory of the blank slate of a child. So that's who Locke is. And of English philosophy here, she says, Our tendency has been exclusively towards naturalism, if not materialism, to the exclusion of a vital element in education, the force of the idea. So then we move on to Madame de Stal's thoughts about Locke.
1: Madame de Stal was a woman, a French woman of letters. Her lifetime overlapped with the events of the French Revolution and the Napoleonic era. And she, she was a commentator of the times and very, very well thought of. Mm-hmm. So it would, it would stand to reason that she has thoughts about a philosopher.
0: It absolutely would. Uh, and a quick note. Uh, want to say a huge thanks to the lady that read the French passage for us, for our reading. Hold on. She is a friend of Crystal's mother. and Muriel we, Gregory. Muriel Gregory. So a big thank you to Muriel Gregory, who you may or may not ever hear us say that, but thanks anyway. But yeah, so Madame de Stahl talks about Locke, and Um, She says a bunch of French words.
1: I actually did not read it in English. It is available. I didn't
0: either. Uh, It's available uh, on Ambleside's...
1: Ambleside Online.
0: Yeah, it's available on... Or a translation is available on Ambleside Online. Yeah, there's there's a couple different places where you can find it. I suggest listening to it or reading it. Since unless you speak French, listening to it's not really going to do much good for you.
1: Are you finding it right
0: now? Yeah, I'm looking for it. Yeah, Madame de Stahl did not agree with Locke, basically. And she also says she says in this quote, she says, with the exception of Germany, all of Europe accepted this metaphysical concept that that Locke's, Locke's metaphysical ideas. Uh, she says, Locke's medical physical... Locke's metaphysical ideas didn't destroy English thought. They just tarnished their natural originality a little and dried up the source of their grand philosophical thinking. And then she says, with the exception of Germany, all of Europe accepted this metaphysical concept, and it was one of the main reasons for immorality, which now had theory to back it up. So she really takes a shot at Locke here.
1: That's okay. He's dead. He can handle it.
0: Well, he wasn't at the time.
1: Yeah, he was. He died in 1704. She was born in 1766.
0: Well, he's a perfect guy to take shots at then because he's dead. (laughs) Those are the best people to attack. So Madame de Stal clearly didn't like Locke. And I'm not, I wasn't quite sure as I read through this, why on earth we're talking about Locke and Madame de Stahl. Because I thought we were reading, what's his name? Alfred Foyer.
1: Well, I think the basis of Foyer's book is that we need to formulate a basis of philosophy and so she's going back to where philosophy began in well quote-unquote began in england the dominant the predominant philosophy of the day was still Locke's. it was on the ebb it was leaving but to get your history sure you start with Locke, and then she moves on to spencer and bain spencer was a philosopher in the victorian era and he did a lot of stuff. And he was the single most influential European intellectual in the closing decades of the 19th century. And Bain was a Scottish philosopher who founded the first ever journal of psychology and analytical philosophy. And so he was a leading figure in establishing and applying the scientific method to psychology. So she's building the foundation, starting at Locke, moving on to Herbert and Spencer and moving forward says even though we have these uh, the chief source of our weakness of weakness in our attempt to formulate a science of education is that we do not perceive education as the outcome of philosophy we deal with the issue and ignore the source so we have this history of all these random little bits without one cohesive without applying the psychology to education specifically
0: okay that makes sense
1: that's what I saw.
0: That, make, that makes a lot of sense, because she's going from the foundation of it and working her way up to up to where she's at.
1: Which is where Ms. Monsieur Foyer comes in, mm-hmm. and the spirit of reform is in the air. Things are changing.
0: We're on the verge of chaos.
1: And she, she comes in, we're on the throes of an educational reformation coming out of the chaos. Mm-hmm. So she has a little bit different of a a viewpoint on that.
0: This quote here, a glance at the various forms of the education systems obtaining in Europe and America is sufficient to betray to the observant eye, how near to the verge of chaos we are standing. And I can't help but think how applicable that is today with our educational systems and how they've been for the last 20 years.
1: Well, on top of that, every president you get, you get a different little bit of something. What is it? You pick up a suggestion here, a practical hint there, without troubling to consider what scheme of life they fit into.
0: It is a drawback to the American system of government, where you have a new set of leaders every couple of years.
1: Four to eight years.
0: Because there is no... There is supposed to be an overriding principle based on the Constitution and, per the founders, Judeo-Christian elements of morality and life. And that's what they assumed was going to be the basis of American society.
1: But even still, you have, by default, you you come at the the same problem with two different solutions, based on which party you're affiliated with. Right. And so the method to fix whatever issue it is changes, regardless of... Regardless of if either of them are following the Constitution or not, which they should be, but it it changes even if they are.
0: Yeah, and that's something we've talked about in the past.
1: I want to look up chaos. I want the definition of chaos.
0: I see you have a dictionary.
1: I do because my computer's sitting down. Chaos. Complete
0: and disorder, Complete I'm getting disorder there. and confusion. It's also- I'm
1: not going to listen. It's la, 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 la. Also,
0: a two thousand five movie.
1: Now you're gonna look at the movie.
0: Yeah, I am. It's a Jason Chaos. Statham movie.
1: Man. The greatest confusion and disorder.
0: Or a Jason Statham movie.
1: Isn't he the one that died in a car
0: wreck? No, no, no. That's uh, oh, that's the wrong Did one.
1: Did he do the the inter- intercept? Not the interceptor. The the delivery. The chauffeur? Yeah,
0: that's uh the... Oh, man. Okay, you're asking me too many questions here. Paul Walker.
1: Okay. He was the Fast and the Furious.
0: Yeah. And he passed away in a car crash because he was drinking and driving a really fast car. And it flipped and he died. And it was very sad. Jason Statham was the trans- transporter.
1: Transporter. That's what it was. Got it.
0: So... She said we're on the verge of, he said we're on the verge of chaos. She says, no, we're on the throes of an educational revolution.
1: Emerging from chaos. We're
0: emerging from chaos. We're reforming the education system.
1: Because we are beginning to recognize that education is the applied science of life. Mm -hmm. She said we already have the existing material in the philosophy of the ages and the science of the day to make this educational code. And we find that education is neither more nor less than the practical application of our philosophy. Again, you have to know the why to know the what and the Mm -hmm. how.
0: And then she goes on to say, what we have to do is to gather together and order our resources to put the first things foremost and all things in sequence and to see that the education is neither more nor less than the practical application of that philosophy. Did you just read that? Yep. I think what I'm doing is I'm looking at the first bit I've highlighted and I didn't see that you didn't read that. (laughs) I was trying to find that quote and I I found it. I found it. (laughs) Jeez. I'm glad I'm such a good listener. I'm listening. (laughs)
1: Well, it was your turn to talk, even though you're saying the exact same thing I was saying. Right
0: now, now I'm thrown all the way off my game. I don't know what I'm (laughs) supposed to say now. Hence, yeah, but I didn't highlight that. That's not. I'm
1: going on. Shush. No. Listen.
0: I'm not good at listening. Wait. You
1: just. (laughs) Hence, if our educational thought is to be sound and effectual, we must look to the philosophy that underlies it and must be in a condition to trace every counsel of perfection for the bringing up of children to one or two, or I'm sorry, one or another of the two schools of philosophy, of which must needs be the outcome. That's a weird sentence. But basically, you have to know what you're teaching. And is it naturalism or idealism?
0: Yeah, and that's what we get into right after this. Is, she says, is, the next heading is, is our system of education to be the issue of naturalism or idealism?
1: Speaking of. And then the first sentence speaking is, of, is our system of education to here. be the
0: issue of naturalism or idealism?
1: We found that they have study questions in the appendix. We
0: did. They're great.
1: You know, like halfway through, because we're on chapter 12.
0: Because we finally looked at the back. but There's an index in the back. But. Why did I not know that there was an index in the back?
1: <laughs> we were just looking at the appendixes and you didn't find it then there's an index yes there is an index in the back
0: and study questions
1: but the study questions as john found out Wait, there's an appendix? are the headings it says appendix where hmm. it says study or there it doesn't say study questions it just says appendix
0: questions for the use of students okay i'm sorry
1: it is the appendix
0: y- you're right appendix i need my appendix removed
1: No, you don't. It does something. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows what, but it does something. So we were really excited because we were going to, you know, start going through the questions and figuring out what the answers are.
0: Right. Because how great would that be?
1: And then the questions are the headings of the sections. So.
0: And some of them are reworded to actually be questions. Others of them are not. The, The questions for students is just. The header. So if the header is, is our system of education to be the issue of naturalism or idealism? Do you want to know what the study question is?
1: Question six. Is our system of education to be the issue of naturalism or idealism?
0: Really glad that they have that question in there.
1: Anyways, back to what you were saying.
0: Yeah. So the, uh, the heading and then the first sentence are the same. And that threw me when you were reading it and I was editing that because I heard you do the, the heading then I heard you do the heading again, and I almost cut it out what when you when you were doing the reading for this, you read the heading and then oh, you read the oh, first oh sentence oh, and it is I the see. heading but yeah, so anyway, so is our system of education to be the issue of naturalism or idealism, or is there indeed a media via middle way yep we're good at French
1: okay, so now we're actually talking we move on from. Very basis basic look at philosophy, looked at how we need a code, and then now we're talking about the question that Monsieur foyer is setting himself to answer. So we're getting into what he actually says, as opposed to the backstory of the review, I guess.
0: Mm-hmm. So to get here, we're going to read a quote that Monsieur Foyer quotes.
1: No, we have to do the umpire thing, because that's awesome. Oh, that's right. You missed the umpire. I did
0: miss the umpire thing. So, Monsieur Foyer, where'd it go?
1: Page 120. I'm I'm on the page, I'm just trying
0: to find it. He says, no doubt he is of a mind, or she says, no doubt he is of a mind with the umpire in a cricket match who lays down the dictum that one must be quite fair to both sides with a little leaning to one's own. And Monsieur Foyer takes sides with the classical as compared or as preferred to scientific culture. But
1: and he, he is- has reasons for that. And this, I think, is her thesis statement for the review. His examination of the question of national education is full of instruction and inspiration for the thoughtful parent as well as for the schoolmaster. Or maybe that's her why she's examining this book.
0: It seems like that's, that's why she's examining this, because she sees value in it because of that
1: and is is recommending it to the perusal of the parents mm-hmm. and the teachers cuz she's she's doing this both to the in, in the the PNEU and the this was in the parents review the magazine that they put out mhm quarterly or something they put it out
0: <laughs> so foyer quotes Guyou Gaillou Gaillel.
1: who is Jean-Marie Gaillou who was in the 1800s, 1854 to 1888. He was only, he was only 30. 34 when he died. 33. He was a French philosopher and poet who analyzed and responded to modern philosophy, especially moral philosophy.
0: So he was a big deal. So Foyer quotes Guy. Goethe-
1: he was only 34. What have I done?
0: Have you been a great philosopher a great French philosopher? No, You're I, can't a speak, I can't speak you can't
1: speak French. <laughs> I mean, there is that. That is a
0: drawback for being a French philosopher. So anyway, this French philosopher said a thing. He said, Given the hereditary merits and faults of a race, how far can we modify existing heredity by means of education for a new heredity?
1: So yeah. Right, Mason is quoting uh foyer. Who is quoting? You got you. Right?
0: There's Does it break
1: of... in the, what, fourth wall? Fourth yeah,
0: wall? well, yeah, you know. Something. There's a quote inside a quote inside a quote. It's a lot of quotes. Uh, so, and then Foyer has the has the comment, uh, by means of education, we must create such hereditary tendencies as will be useful to the race, both physically and intellectually. And that's something that Charlotte Mason has talked about earlier in this book is heredity and how much does heredity matter? And if it does, why are we doing education? And if it doesn't, then why do people talk about it? So we've, we've discussed heredity any number of times.
1: Sorry. Let me get the chapter. Dr. Maudsley. Yes. Dr. Maudsley's chapter three.
0: Right. And this is where we talked specifically about heredity if heredity means so much what remains for the parent to do but to enable him to work out his own salvation without let or hindrance of their making upon the lines of his individuality which she disagrees with vehemently because heredity is not the end-all be-all
1: ideas can change a person
0: right and she talks about that in several places
1: including right here yeah
0: including right here so we're talking about heredity again
1: And Monsieur Foyer begins at the beginning. He examines the principle of selection, not only with an animal, but in intellectual, aesthetic, and moral life. And there's also psychological selection. The ideas which are fittest to rule the world are the ones that get chosen. So then he goes on to complain that no attempt has been made to harmonize or unify education as a whole in any one civilized nation. The controversy rages around quite secondary questions. Literary, scientific, ancient, modern languages. And that goes back to what we talked about. Where the, the chaos part of standing at the edge of chaos. Right,
0: because everybody's trying to do their own thing.
1: But again you need to have an underlying philosophy.
0: Right. And that's what that's what Foyer is trying to provide here. So she
1: cl- She she throws in a thing. Now, this is basically what we're trying to do with the parents' union and its various agencies. This proper study of mankind is man.
0: Oh, that's funny. I missed that. She's um, she's providing this attempt to unify education. Yeah. Well, there you go. So we move on to that uh, Foyer neglects the physiological basis of education. In a word, he returns boldly to the platonic philosophy. The idea is to him all in all, in philosophy and education. But he returns empty-handed.
1: Naturalism has left him nothing to work with.
0: And this is where it seems like Charlotte Mason starts diverging from Foyer. Because she says then, while we believe that thought was purely volatile, incapable of impact upon matter or of being acted upon by matter, our theories of education were necessarily vague.
1: She goes to now, uh, she loves this whole brain, the, the thoughts that you think make impressions upon the gray matter of your brain. She loves this idea.
0: That your thoughts physically change you.
1: And so they're talking about Ariel a sprite, a willful sprite, and I am from. Pretty sure it's the the spirit in the Tempest. Tempest, is, okay. was by Shakespeare, who was imprisoned and set free, and went to go serve for a, a year in order to gain his freedom fully, and did all sorts of stuff. Anyways, a willful sprite. So this this part of the brain. Where, where Ariel touches the ground and makes an imprint. She's using that as the thoughts touch the brain. Mm-hmm. And uh, like you said, this is where she diverges from Monsieur Foyer and moves into the, the, this fact that the, it opens up a function of education, which Monsieur Foyer hardly touches. The most important function of the formation of habits, physical, intellectual, and moral. And she's already talked, even in this book, a lot about habits. Mm-hmm. We go back to chapter four with the the saying, so an act reap a habit, so a habit reap a character, so a character reap a destiny. Which and she
0: requote requotes here.
1: Mm-hmm. And then also chapter nine, there's a lot about habits. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about habits a lot. We have. Because... She talks about habits because she believes that there are two things. Uh, the, the functions of education can be roughly defined as twofold. A, formation of habits, and B, presentation of ideas. So if you sum up her you know, philosophy, habits is half of it. Mm-hmm.
0: So before we skip an entire section about morality, Yeah, I was going to come back. So. Okay, good. Because right after she says, so an act, reap a habit, so a habit, reap a character, so a character, reap a destiny... She goes on here, and, and she hasn't said this before. And She said, And a great function of the educator is to secure that acts shall be so regularly, purposefully, and methodically sown that the child shall reap the habits of the good life in thinking and doing with the minimum of conscious effort. And then she moves quickly on to morality and habit. and She says, Educate the child in the right habits, and the man's life will run in them. Without the consistent wear and tear of the moral effort of decision.
1: And there's been a lot of stuff about that recently in articles about decision fatigue mm-hmm. and talking to, you know, President Obama or Mark Zuckerberger about, you know, why do they wear the exact same thing every day? It's one less decision. It mm-hmm. is a habit. You wear that, that's what you wear. Mm-hmm. Which uh, dad has also said that that's a really good part about having a uniform.
0: Your your father who's in the military,
1: so he wears the same thing to work because he's got a uniform.
0: And I'm so jealous of it. Right now, my uniform is t shirts and shorts, but at some point, it won't be anymore. As true as that is, I, I, that that seems to be a part of what she's talking about.
1: Yeah, it's it's the constant wear and tear of the decision,
0: but also the fact that there there is no decision. You're just doing that thing. And she goes on to, to, to give a list of things. She says, he has been brought up to be courteous, prompt, punctual, neat, considerate, and he practices these virtues without conscious effort.
1: Which this list is a list that she says in, on page 27 mm-hmm. that the parents may settle for the future man, even in his early childhood.
0: And she continues, it is much easier to behave in the way he is used to than to originate a new line of conduct. Uh, It made me think of what's going on in uh, pop culture at this point with the terms toxic or with the term toxic masculinity, where culture is saying there are elements of masculinity that is wrong, evil, terrible, bad, and it needs to be banished from society. And a lot of those are men who are loud and strong and act as protectors and try and be courteous and kind to women. And, and people lab- want to label that as being toxic. And there are elements of being loud that turn into being ornery. And there are elements of being courteous that turn into being, that, that can turn into being manipulative. And there are elements of protecting that can turn into isolating. And so there's a way that you can take those virtues of masculinity and turn them to evil. The same way you can do with with femininity, and so the culture at large wants to say, well, those those things that can turn to evil, we just need to get rid of that thing. So we can't have strong men. Men shouldn't be loud. Men shouldn't be protectors because they can take those to the negative. And what she's saying here is that if we raise a child correctly, educating them in the right habits then they won't turn that way. The, that, that masculinity won't be toxic. And the same thing for femininity. The femininity won't be toxic. It won't turn to that vile side of things because that's not where it goes.
1: Well, it's the anything in excess or in out of proportion can be a bad thing. Right. She talked about that in the treatment of defects. Yes. Was it in Treatment of defects?
0: Serious. Uh, I think you're in Culture of Character. Like page 87 is where I'm at.
1: Eccentricity. No, the one oh, before. Oh, sorry. The eccentricity. 79. Yeah,
0: the, the nature of yeah being an eccentric, eccentric person.
1: Too much of something can be be bad, no matter what it is. Right. No, but before that, before that thought came up, you were talking about... Setting up the habits in the early years to make life easier, and she talked about that at page on page sixty six where in in the the parent as schoolmaster and talking about discipline mm-hmm. where if they choose to allow their child to run free until you know age seven, eight, nine, then the odds are against the child, and right. he's fighting every step of the way. Where it could have been made easier and smoother by good habits at the beginning.
0: Right. That makes sense. So we're not just talking about habits that grow to manhood. We're talking about habits that you form in a three-year-old that manifest in a six- and seven-year-old. Yeah. Interesting. I hadn't I hadn't put that together.
1: Real quick. She doesn't say it's impossible to change. That's true. Uh, as an adult... As, as an older child, she does not say it's impossible to change. She does not. Merely that it is harder. And the odds are against you. But it is possible. It
0: is possible. Because again, we're talking about ideals here. We're talking yes. about a, an, an ideal family situation. We talked about that when we were talking about uh, a two-parent household. A mother and a father. That's an ideal. Not all households are that way. And there are good kids that come out of of broken homes or single parent homes. And there are good parents in those homes as well. No. So just because the situation is not the ideal does not mean that the same principles cannot still be applied to that situation and good things will come out of it. So if the situation is that, that your children haven't been disciplined for a while or, or haven't been trained and and taught right habits for a while, you can start. You can start now. You can start today and tomorrow, and you can start making it happen. It's gonna be hard, but it's not fruitless.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and, and again, when she talked about habits and the the wearing of the track in the mind, it takes while. And if that groove is super super deep, then it's gonna take an even longer time.
0: Yeah, because you have to get out of that groove. You have to get can out of
1: anything. it, and you have to give it time to physically again this is this is their brain knowledge of the time. I don't know how accurate it is today, but she she was saying you need to have time for the brain to regenerate its cells mm-hmm. to basically wear over that path right to have it grow up and 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 become flat again mm-hmm. and have the tracks in a different place and that can- so so that when you go back to you you try to fall back into that old one there's really no place for it to keep going
0: and I remember talking about that
1: and again I've not looked up the new brain studies and science
0: I feel like Charlotte Mason would have really enjoyed neuroscience of today I think she would have been all over it it would be interesting to sit down with her
1: she already is
0: (laughs) well she already is absolutely invested in the neuroscience of the day but we've come so far in the last hundred years Be fascinating to have a conversation with her then. Anyway.
1: You have to make do with us. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because
0: we're neuroscience. Not at all. Not at all. So she says a habit is set up by following out an initial idea with a long sequence of corresponding acts. And she goes into. Hold hold on. Back up.
1: Back up. It says even in this physiological work, the spiritual force of the idea has a part to play. Mm. This is where she starts bringing in spirit and how spirit and physical work together because, because the habit is set up by the idea, the spiritual force of an idea that, that goes to a child or, or anybody goes to a person. And she gives the example of this, this little child who, Does not like getting up in the morning, which I don't have any of those children. But she said, you know, he was told the story that the the great Duke slept in so narrow a bed that he could not turn over because the great Duke said, when you want to turn over, it's time to get up. So the boy does still doesn't want to get up in the morning, but he does want to be like his hero of Waterloo. So you tell him, you know, hey, you can do this just like the Duke. And so when he wants to roll over, he gets up.
0: It made me think of the reason why it's so important to have heroes for children. And it doesn't have to be a hero in the way we think of heroes today. When you say hero, you think of superheroes and Marvel movies and Batman and Superman. but But it doesn't have to be that. That's why literature is so powerful. The heroes that you have can be whatever you look up to that is espousing good morals.
1: Or even just an idea of a character trait or something you want to emulate.
0: Yeah. I can remember as a kid, uh, I read a lot of Star Wars books and there was one of the series that had a main character in it that I idolized quite a bit. And some of those character qualities that he had were qualities that I tried to emulate in my own life because I looked up to him as a as a hero, and tried to tried to be like him.
1: Well, and again, the idea of you don't know what will inspire. Yeah, you don't know what will catch their fascination.
0: When when we used to go on family vacations or long drives, we would listen to books on tape because this is back when there were tape decks in cars. And one of my parents' favorites was the Louis L'Amour or were Louis L'Amour short stories and one of the one of the stories i remember the most and and stuck with me was there was a it was a sheriff tracker person who's the hero of the story and then there's a murder that happens and so the sheriff gets called to the murder or texas ranger or something i don't know called to the murder and he looks around and he sees footprints trailing away in there they're moccasin prints so all the people are going, oh, it was the darn Indians that killed them." We're going to have to go kill the Indians. And the ranger's looking at the footprints. He's going, these aren't, these aren't Indian footprints. And the guys are like, of course it is. They're moccasins. He's going, no. Indians walk with their toes in. They walk toe in. Look down at the footprints. These footprints are toe out. Like a person who's, who walks bow-legged, who rode horses. And all the townsfolk are like, oh, but they're moccasins. Sheriff is going, no, that's it's a guy trying to trying to play off this as being an Indian attack. And I remember that. And at that time, I actively changed my stride so that my toes were not pointed out, but were pointed either straight or even in. And to this day, I walk with my toes pointed straight or in. And I cannot walk with my toes out. And every time I see someone walking toe out, I chuckle at it because they
1: can't get, they can't get away with a moccasin murder. Right. They
0: can't get away with it. And, and it it makes me chuckle less for, for the fact that that person walks toe out and more for the fact that I remember that story and, and that bit about myself that, that I changed a physical trait of myself to match what I thought was a really cool thing in a book.
1: You never know what will change you.
0: Right? Ideas are hugely powerful. And who knows where they come from? They come from good books. Books. Read read Louis (laughs) L'Amour books. Your children will learn to walk differently, I guess. So now we get to the part that you mentioned earlier. You said the functions of education may be roughly defined as twofold. A, the formation of habits. And two, the presentation of ideas. Really, What? Really? Yeah, I said a and two.
1: <laughs> the first depends far more largely than we recognize on physiological processes, and the second is purely spiritual in origin, method, and result.
0: Well, she uses a and b here, and then says the first and second. So, she's mixing it too.
1: No, she's not.
0: Yeah, I just figured no, I would. No, I would, she's not. I would help her along. No, she's
1: not. <laughs> no (laughs) no okay so is it possible is it not possible that here we have the meeting point of the two philosophies which have divided mankind since men began to think their thoughts and ways so basically she's saying is it possible that now we have the answer both are right both are necessary
0: it is conceivable that the spiritual should have oh that's a question Gosh, reading is hard. Is it conceivable that the spiritual should have any manner of, of impact upon the material? Every problem, from the education of a little child to that doctrine of the Incarnation, turns upon this point.
1: I should have you try to read at some point. <laughs> And then try to edit yourself after doing a reading. Because <laughs> you messed up there again, too.
0: Oh, I know I did. I know I would if if I was reading for reading sake, I would I would pay more attention to it and I would read a lot more slowly.
1: Yeah, I just I think it would be funny. So she says basically there's no middle ground either. Yes, the spiritual modifies and impacts the physical. Upon the material or it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And either thought is a process of the brain or the material brain is an agent of the spiritual thought which acts upon it. Talks about the fingers of a player upon the keys of his instrument. Grant this and the whole question is conceded. The impact of the spiritual upon the material is an accepted fact. So I just realized this. She says, we've had occasion to say this before and I did not look up where it was before.
0: I don't know, but I I had a note in here. Under this, says the uh, the physiologists have made it absolutely plain that the brain is concerned with thinking. Nay, more, that thought may go on without any volition on the part of the thinker. Further, that much of our best work in art and literature is the result of what is called unconscious cere- cere- cerebration. Cerebration? Is that a word? Cerebration? Cerebration? That can't be a word. Cerebration. The working of the brain. It's a word, apparently.
1: She knows more vocabulary than you.
0: Whatever. It's true. Uh, It made me think about a boss of mine, an, an engineer of mine. Not of mine, an engineering boss of mine. A mechanical engineer who was a really good engineer, but he was absolutely terrible at solving problems at work. He couldn't do it. It wouldn't happen. You'd come up with an issue and a problem that needed to be solved. And the ideas that he would come up with on the spot were terrible. And he would tell you so. But he'd say, all right, I'm going to, I'll come up with something. We'll, we'll come up with a solution and we'll get there. And, you know, a day would go by or two days would go by and he'd come into the office and be like, all right, I figured it out. This is what we're going to do. And you'd look at it and go, well, that's a great solution. (laughs) I would never have thought of that. How'd you, how did you come up with that idea? He'd be like, well, I was sleeping and then I woke up and that's the idea I had. So I wrote it down and he would, he had a notebook next to his, next to his bed that was specifically for writing down ideas that he, that he had when he would just wake up in the middle of the night. He'd be like, yeah, I woke up in the middle of the night, couldn't fall back asleep. And that's, that's the thought that was going through my head. So I wrote it down. So that's crazy. I, she says here that it's in, uh, art and literature. I contend that it's in the sciences too that you come up with your best solutions when you're not thinking about it because your brain just keeps on working. So, I, you know, little little anecdotal evidence that that's absolutely the way that these things work. And then we we take a turn to talking about parents and teachers and the role that they play. She says, parents and teachers are permitted to play only a subordinate part. You may bring your horse to the water, but you can't make him drink. And you may present ideas of the fittest to the mind of the child, but you do not know in the least which he will take and which he will reject. But our part is to see that his educational plat is constantly replenished with fit and inspiring ideas. And then we must needs leave it to the child's own appetite to take which he will have and as much as he requires.
1: This is one of the phrases that's popular in Charlotte Mason circles is spreading the feast so you 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 prepare a feast okay. you spread a feast for the child and this is where they they see it and they see all of these inspiring ideas and they take what they need and what they want
0: yeah so this seems very very high level practical educational instruction
1: the what to actually yeah fill this table with
0: yeah we've been talking about the why why do you do this and here we have the how. How do you present those ideas? And how do you go well, no, about doing not even
1: that? that. How do you educate? You present with ideas. Right, you're Fit right. and inspiring you're right. ideas. Even a level higher than that. You're right. This thing, this part coming up, the is a huge caution. The least symptom of satiety, especially when the ideas we present are moral and religious, should be taken as a serious warning persistence on our part just then may end in the child's never willing to sit down to that dish anymore and and i think this is a guard against sermonizing yeah it it applies in in all aspects of education and all aspects all subjects but she says especially in moral and religious don't beat a dead horse And continue talking once they've, once their attention's gone. Right. Once, once they're full and once they hit that point, you gotta stop.
0: Leave it be. It reminds me of, and it just hit me in uh, the last chapter on page 110. She says, read your Bible story to the child bit by bit, get them to tell you in his own words what you've read, and then if you'd like, talk about it, but not much above all do not let us attempt a practical commentary on every verse in genesis so she said that already that present the material and let the material speak for itself yeah even even things we're we're reading aesop's fables and you know every fable has a moral that goes with it sometimes we have a conversation about what that moral is sometimes we just let the story be and you read the story and you finish the story and you're done other times you read the story and the question gets asked, why, why did that happen that way? Or, or you engage the question and, and you're telling a story about a, a fox and a goat and the fox is mean and the goat's dumb and like, well, man, why was the fox so mean? And you get to ask a simple question like that and then you have a simple interaction and then you're done. Or man, wasn't that goat gullible? What should the goat have done? no instead of listening to the wily fox and you can have a short conversation like that other times you ask that question you get a blank stare and you go okay we're moving on cuz you're you're not you're not there
1: this is not the time it's
0: not the time it's not the place so uh, it's something that you know there's i I don't think there's a rule book as to when you talk about things and how long and what specifically it's it's more the if the child is interested in hearing it Then have a short conversation.
1: And coming a little bit further to the looking at what you do, she's saying, you know, our limitations, the very limitations we see to our own powers in this matter of presenting ideas should make us the more anxiously careful as to the nature of the ideas set before our children. So we, we need to choose the, the nature of these ideas and we need to choose the fit and inspiring ideas and we should be very careful there's the saying you know i don't care what they read as long as they're reading and that's that's not true we we do need no. to care
0: no and that's why that's why curated lists of books and poems and things are so valuable
1: yeah and there's a lot of them out there there are uh, there's a lot of really good ones out there there are and and this can go too far, this can be debilitating where you you're shackled by the idea that what you present is of the utmost importance, and so you you don't make the decision and you don't present anything to them and right. that's that's again debilitating because now you're not presenting anything
0: right so there's got to be there's got to be a middle ground where you're you are anxiously careful but you're not debilitatingly scared. There's got to be a middle ground. She also says, directly following that, she says, we shall not be content that they learn geography, history, Latin, whatnot. We shall ask what salient ideas are presented in each such study and how these ideas affect the intellectual and moral development of the child. So, again, it's not specifically the... The details and dates and names and elevations and scientific stuff that matter. It's the idea that is conveyed.
1: And, and this is kind of her conclusion. We can look at this question of education as uh, Monsieur Foyer presents. We shall probably differ from him in many matters of detail, but we're most inclined to agree with him in his conclusion that not some subject of mere utility but moral and so- social science conveyed by means of history literature and otherwise is one subject which we are not at the liberty to leave out from a curriculum of a being breathing thoughtful breath that's an interesting way of saying a person
0: a a person who is present in the world who's mindful who's thoughtful there's there's a lot more than just a guy there I, I i like I like the the floweriness of that statement a being breathing thoughtful breath
1: and then she's got this sentence here that says, The table of studies given in the appendix are of extreme value
0: right The which appendix is, awesome. is great, go look
1: at it, which you can. it's on Google Books and it's on page two ninety two well, appendix one. The title is. How to Combine a Classical Training with the Study of Economic and Industrial Science.
0: It's a good, short, concise title. I like that.
1: It has times laid out for what ages and how long to do each thing and kind of a summary of what the topics are. A a lot like what she's presenting in, I think, books one and three, Home Education and School Education, the the timetable ideas. So I thought it was really cool to just flip through that. And then she ends with a quote directly from The name of this book is Foyer. no that's, that's this directly is, from Education from a National sp- Standpoint.
0: She says first two things or two things are necessary. First, we must introduce into the study of each science the philosophic spirit and method, general views, the search for the most general principles and conclusions. Then we must reduce the different sciences to unity by a sound training in philosophy, which we will be as obligatory to students in science as the students in literature. Something I remember. So I graduated with an engineering degree, which means I took a lot of physics and, and chemistry classes and, and even some, no, I didn't take any biology. I went all the way through organic chemistry. Oh, I think they were electives. No, I I had to. I thought you did physics. I definitely did physics. No, I, I did, I did chemistry also. I had to. They were, they were required. It was required curriculum. Part of chemistry and physics in college was learning who studied these things, what time in their life they studied it, why they studied it based on their life, who they studied it with. So she talks, she talks in this about, uh,
1: She's got our list of people. Yeah, she
0: does. She says, How interesting arithmetic and geometry might be if we gave a short list of their principal theorems. If the child were mentally present at the labors of Pythagoras or a Plato, a Euclid, or in modern times a Viete, a Descartes, a Pascal, or a Leibniz. The one I remember is Pascal, learning about Pascal's theory of... Isn't it Pascal's theory of gases? I think that's, I I think that's what it is.
1: did not go that direction. He didn't bad. go that direction?
0: No, but, but I, I remember... In those classes, learning about those people and that being one of the principal things we learned. And in that class, it always bothered me because all I wanted to learn was the science of it. But looking back now, the who and the why is just as important as the what.
1: The context.
0: Yeah. And hmm. so that's that's something I, I do remember in my curriculum. And maybe it wasn't done as well as it could have, but but I definitely remember that. And then she finishes this section or he finishes this section because it's just a giant quote with great theories instead of being lifeless and anonymous abstractions would become human living truths, each with its own history, like a statue by Michelangelo or like a painting by Raphael. So it is it's hugely important that we impart ideas upon our children more so than mere facts and dates.
1: She ends on a kind of. It's a strange note after the the review
0: well she ends she ends, and then she ends again, yeah she's fond of doing that it's like watching the Lord of the Rings she just keeps she keeps ending, but yeah, so there's there's that chapter, Faith and duty part part two see French. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Join the conversation with us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter.